0: you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: but they're actually embracing the power of storytelling, telling less branded stories, putting their values and their their beliefs as a company on display by giving other people the microphone, You know, talking about their community partners or their corporate social responsibility initiatives with the environment and things like that. So I think we've seen a much deeper level of storytelling from advertisers, particularly in the last year or so.
0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and lots of different types of initiatives online. On the phone with me today, or I should say on Skype with me today, is Melanie Diesel. Uh, she's returning to the podcast. She's the founder of M Diesel Media and creator of the Overlap League, two things we're going to be talking to her about. But uh, she's a native advertising strategist, consultant, speaker, and author, and uh, she was the first editor of Branded uh, Content at the New York Times. Welcome again to the podcast, Melanie.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Well, I wanted to have you back for a while because I wanted to see what things have been changing in Native content. Now, you, you've sort of changed your role since we last spoke. You are at the New York Times. What have you been doing since we last spoke?
1: Yeah. So uh, when I left the New York Times, I actually went over to Time, Inc. for a short period of time to help them build out the corporate native team there. So, you know, Time Inc. is one of those huge companies that has 35 plus properties in the U.S., you know, everything from Sports Illustrated and Entertainment Weekly to, of course, Time, Food and Wine, all of these amazing brands. And they wanted to build out a corporate team to build native there. So I went over as director of creative strategy. And once we got the foundry up and running, I actually went out on my own to start my own consulting firm so I could work with hopefully, you know, more publishers and brands to help them get their native ad practices up and running.
0: Okay. And just so we make sure that everybody sort of understands what, we, what we're what we doing here, what what is, you know, what makes native advertising different than just what normally people think of, of as advertising print ads or, or like commercials?
1: Yeah. So in short, native advertising really just means any form of advertising that's native to the context. So if you're in a Twitter context, that's, you know, a sponsored tweet, If you're on Facebook, that's a promoted story. If you're talking about a publisher, though, what's native to that environment is usually content of some sort. So it could be articles, blogs, videos, slideshows, even podcasts. Now we're moving into the space where VR and 360 video are native for some publishers. So basically my charge is to help publishers and advertisers work together to create co-branded stories that are going to appeal to that audience in a way that hopefully is additive to them and not going to be as distracting as, say, you know, a a banner ad or a pop-up or something like that, but instead providing them information and value in the form of content.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, when you were on the podcast last, we were talking about a campaign that you had done at the New York Times around "Orange Is the New Black." You had there were some features that you had that you had written, and some other type of content that were sort of promoting that short show, and it was sponsored, and it was certainly separate from any of the other you know reviews or, or TV columns or anything else that might have been written by the New York Times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that was I think June of twenty fourteen. So going back. Uh, quite a while here now. But yeah, that piece was called Women Inmates, Why the Male Model Doesn't Work. And it was essentially a 1,500-word investigative piece about how women's experience of prison and going through the women's prison system is the same or different from men's experience of prison and some of the different innovative programs that are out there to help women cope with that experience and, and hopefully you know recover and reform as they're going through the process and not end up back in prison just because there are not you know services or job training that are actually practical for them to help become, you know, the hopefully the the citizens that that they want to be. So it was a really interesting piece. It included all kinds of multimedia, audio, photos, there was a three-part mini documentary. That piece was really transformative for the native space, I think, because it was really it was editorial in nature. You know, it, provi- it told true stories of real people and provided a lot of value to our audience and just happened to be sponsored by Netflix and Orange is the New Black. So it was really a, a perfect marriage of the kind of stories the New York Times audience is interested in, in the formats that they're used to and the kinds of stories that Netflix and Orange is the New Black wanted to tell at the time. So that was a, a really great piece for us to work on. And what was incredible, I think, was the reception of that piece. I know that when we chatted, it was still fairly early, but, you know, that piece won a number of awards. It was praised by, you know, the newsroom at the New York Times. David Carr, our our late media columnist, actually tweeted, all brand journalism doesn't suck. So that's about about as good as you'll get, you know, a lot of, of really great stuff coming out of that piece to help people see that native content can be truly valuable to the audience when it's done right.
0: Well, what is it you, do you think, is it just uh, the quality and the, the level of reporting that goes into it that, that makes it uh, something that's, that's sort of beyond just here's, here's a, re- a review about a shop or something? Is it, is it sort of you're plussing up your content?
1: It's two things. I mean, in the case of the New York Times where readers really expect top-notch content, right? They want multimedia, they want depth, they want reliable sources and a diversity of sources, and that's certainly, you know, the this quality bar that we had to meet. I think it's important to note that context is different for every publisher. So what would work well and be exceptional on BuzzFeed is is very different and the same thing can be said for Sports Illustrated or HuffPost or Business Insider or anywhere else. So it comes down to sort of recognizing what are the expectations of the audience from a content perspective on this platform and how do we help advertisers tell stories in a way that meets those expectations. So in the case of The Times, yeah, it was really about quality storytelling, depth and, and really reliable sources.
0: And just to sort of give you a relatable from my life, you know, I work at Federal News Radio. And part of the content that's produced on our site is produ- produced by our marketing team. It's not produced by our editorial side. You know, they they put on panels. They get, you know, expert panels come in and they discuss topics that are relevant and of interest to our target audience, which are or federal managers. And that's they sell sponsorships for that. And so they sell sponsorships for it. It's something that's marketed. It's it's advertise it, you know. It's advertising. You know. It's sort of promoting the Federal News Radio brand and our expertise, et cetera. But there's quality content in there, and you know I don't want to turn this into a you know commercial for Federal News Radio. But I think it's an approach that that people don't always think about when they think about their editorial content and, and their sort of mission. That you know maybe there are so- things that you can do out there with your expertise that maybe you know either through native advertising or some sort of marketing ploy that you can, you know, turn that expertise into a platform for for revenue
1: yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for a long time advertisers were coming to publishers and, and media companies solely for their reach. You know, they really just wanted to get in front of that audience with a banner and, and you were selling based on how many times you could get that scene. And now we're at a really unique point where we're able to sell our storytelling expertise and our knowledge of the audience in a way that hopefully, you know, like we were saying before, creates much better content for the audience. It's sort of a, a win 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 all around where the audience gets a better ad experience the advertiser gets to tell more in-depth stories than they could in a, you know, a standard IAB unit and the publisher or media company finds new revenue streams that, you know, satisfy both their advertisers and their readers. So, you know, what's going to work for you as a media company, it, it really depends and it's different for, for every company. So it's important to have a good understanding of your audience and, and the kind of content that works for them. So you can adapt that in a way that is, you know, clearly disclosed for your audience to, to work with advertisers and, and make that a great experience for everyone.
0: So, you know, maybe it's unfair of me to ask this of you since you're on the native side of the, of the fence, you know, what. where is that demarcation for a lot of the, the editorial, uh, you know, for the publishers? I mean, where do you see the, the line usually being drawn?
1: Yeah, so typically this is being create. this kind of content is being created by a completely separate team, like you said, at, at your company. So uh, there's often some level of disclosure at a byline level that discloses who it was created for or created by rather. So you'll see something like, you know, the news and editorial staffs of X publication had no role in this content's preparation, or this content was created by so-and-so studio, a division of the ad department at Company X. So you'll see some sort of identification of who created the content, whether it was a specialized team or, you know, the advertiser themselves. And you'll usually see something at the very top of the page, um, you know, whether it discloses special ad section, paid content, sponsored content, you know, toward the top. Typically, it has like a colored bar of some sort to make sure it's eye-catching so that that's sort of clear right at the onset. But, you know, publishers have gotten really creative with figuring out how to make sure disclosure is clear. We've seen altered URLs. So you might see, you know, paidpost.nytimes.com instead of your typical nytimes.com as as another way to try to signal that if people are sharing the link or seeing it somewhere before they click it. Um, And many other publishers have adopted that as well. So, you know, in truth it's it's as varied as you know publishers' own layouts are. Even if you were just look to look at something like editorial bylines, where they appear on the page and and how detailed they are it varies by publication. So understandably, the way that works for sponsored content varies as well. And I think we've seen a little bit of condensing of that in the last, you know, year and a half, two years, as the FTC has, you know, slowly released more and more guidelines for us on what qualifies as clear, but we're still moving toward that, you know, we're not unified in the way it's done across the board
0: just yet. Not to inch you into the the fake news real news debate. Is there any concern with you know having a, a section of the paper that that obviously you've described a, you know some clear ways that we we demark what the different sections are. But you know here's something that looks like a news story that's produced by the same pa- you know publication, maybe by different st- staff. Is there is, is there any concern about confusion as to You know, it's not like it's not real or it's not news. You're still reporting it, I guess. Is there any concern about that, I guess?
1: I think it definitely falls into this same conversation where we're having conversations about transparency and you know our, our openness with our audience about where content comes from. That's happening in the sponsored content realm where we want to make sure that disclosure is clear and then of course on the editorial side where we're dealing with the reality of fake news and questionable sourcing. So there's there's certainly a role for native advertising in that conversation. What I will tell you is that you know there's a few, a few things. One is that no advertiser wants to pay for content that no one knows they paid for. You know, that's part of the, the value proposition for them is to get their name in front of that audience as a provider of good content. So advertisers typically, you know, feel pretty strongly that they want clear disclosure and labeling on these pieces so that the audience knows, you know, who's bringing it to them. So that's great in that, you know, as publishers creating branded content, typically brands are our allies in making sure that's clearly disclosed. The other thing is that given how long it takes to create a lot of this content, you know, back and forth and, and approvals and things like that. It's rarely timely content, so you're not going to have sort of a, a fake news, you know, hard news scenario that's being covered in a sponsored way. It's typically more lifestyle content, you know, tip or instructional content, profiles of individuals, more more evergreen. So it, it doesn't always fall, or very rarely, I should say, falls into the, the news category, such that it would be, you know, alongside politics coverage or, you know, breaking news scenarios. So hopefully those two things in combination allow us to make sure that there's not a lot of confusion in a a critical breaking news scenario of sponsored content sort of muddying the conversation. I think the more we deal with fear and, you know, justified skepticism from our audience, the more pressure it puts on us as sponsored content creators to make sure that we're doing our part to make sure that content is clearly labeled and that there is no confusion for our readers. So that skepticism certainly helps us move toward a world where we're, we're more clearly disclosing everything.
0: So you, it's been a couple of years since we spoke and, you know, a lot of things have changed. Obviously you've, you've changed your role in everything. What trends have sort of un, unfolded over the last couple of years in, in native content?
1: So one of the things we've definitely seen is, you know, that the space itself has changed expanded tremendously. So at the time when when we spoke last, you know, the T Brand Studio team at the New York Times was I would I would guess somewhere between ten and twenty people. We were we were a fairly lean team by comparison to the current day team. The New York Times now has over a hundred people working on sponsored content, which you know they're one of the biggest in the industry. They're certainly leading the space, but you also have seen so many more publishers adopt this model and and build a team, especially for creating sponsored content. So that's been great to see getting to see so many, you know, former journalists or transitioning journalists or just really great storytellers finding work in these kinds of teams where, you know, they can get paid for their skills. So that's always great. I think one of the other things that we've seen is brands rather are sort of opening up to the idea of sponsored content in a new way. They're not just seeing it as a place where you know, they might be using storytelling to kind of sell in a backdoor sneaky sort of way. You know, they're not just pretending to tell a story so they could link to a product later, but they're actually embracing the power of storytelling, telling less branded stories, putting their values and their their beliefs as a company on display by giving other people the microphone, you know, talking about their community partners or their corporate social responsibility initiatives with the environment and things like that. So I think we've seen a much deeper level of storytelling from advertisers, particularly in the last year or so.
0: Let's talk about about that and the the way that journalists are coming into native content. I mean, this is, I think we're mostly sitting, talking about uh, the digital space. I mean, you know, you're talking about storytellers. We, we, we're we pretty much talking about the same sort of skills that a journalist would, would use and the, and the same sort of expertise that, that they would bring to uh, their job. Am I right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, truthfully the best sponsored content storytellers are are former journalists, right? Because we know how to find a story, sometimes when there's not really one there, right? We've all had to cover that town meeting and and find something interesting to say about, you know, referendums and things like that. So, you know, journalists are fantastic at finding a story that's going to appeal to the audience. I think the other thing that's so important is journalists come with a conscience, and that is the conscience of of delivering something of value and, and true value to the audience. So having that conscience in the room, that editorial sensibility is really important for keeping branded storytelling honest and keeping the quality bar set very high. Having former journalists in the conversation, I have found typically results in, in much better quality content overall. So all of that is, is a great reason for anyone on the sales and marketing side to, to bring journalists into the fold as part of this process. But the other part that's great is it works both ways. There are, as we all know, many journalists who have been the victims of layoffs or downsizing or, you know, their publications go digital and maybe their skills aren't being used to their full capacity. So this provides a great opportunity to kind of put those same skills, the storytelling, the reporting, the understanding of the audience to, to use in a, in a new industry where your skills are really highly valued and the work is generally fairly well paid, which, you know, we, we've all found that that is not always the case on the editorial side. So again, I think that it can be a win-win, you know, if it's being done right and those journalistic skills are being put to use in a way that respects the experience and the, and the skill set of, of the journalists.
0: So it's a way for you to use your journalism chops and take those skills that you may have honed over a period of years. And actually, maybe even get paid for it. We're talking about pretty much the same sort of, you know, the writing, um, the the digital skills, the multimedia. I mean, there's definitely a need for that for that to fill these positions.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, the thing that's great is these teams are, are usually structured much like a newsroom is where you have subject matter experts. So you might have a photo editor or a video editor or a social media editor, as well as, you know, freelance or, or full-time writers, editors, et cetera, who are coming up with these stories. And I think the reason it works is it's that combination of skills where you have all these minds in a room saying, here's the kinds of stories we want to tell for this advertiser. Here's what we know about our audience and what they love. And then everyone gets to chime in and that combination of, well, the editor saying, this is the best story to tell. And the video editor saying, here's how I can complement that with video. And, you know, your web developer saying, here's a cool new interactive feature I can add to the page to keep it engaging. And then the social editor jumping in and saying, "I can make sure that everyone sees this story, and that you know we're going to get the kind of engagement that our sponsoring partner is expecting." I think it's that marriage of skills that sometimes means the content can can perform even better than editorial content could, simply because it has the resources behind it, you know, and the, and the lib- the liberty of taking time to do all of that, not in a deadline scenario, to kind of create really engaging storytelling.
0: Okay. Well, you've sold me. So, how do I how do I get a, how do I get a job like this? What's the strategy? Is it the same thing if I wanted to go out to for a newspaper? Or what type of skills and experience do you need to sort of put forward to uh, enter this arena?
1: Yeah. So, like I said, most of these teams are set up much like newsrooms. So the roles that they're hiring for typically tap into just one of those skill sets primarily. So you'll be a branded content editor or a photo editor. They're not always looking for sort of a jack of all trades where they'll expect you to be making video and taking photos and writing, for example. So having your area of expertise, whether that's writing, photo, video, social, and having a really good grasp of that uh, will help you figure out what kinds of, of positions you know, you'd know you be great to apply for. I think it's also important just to have at least a, a base level understanding of sort of the economics of how media works. You know, I think for a long time journalists we didn't really have to worry about that, particularly in a print world, right? You filed your story and then your job was pretty much over and you were on to the next one. But having an understanding of of the business models of of these publications, you know, how Subscription and advertising and, and other premium offerings fit together to fund the paper. Having a base level knowledge, you know, reading articles about native advertising, about ad blocking, about marketing, you know, so you can kind of understand the different factors at play and hold your own in that conversation would also be really helpful. So if you're looking for places where you can learn about that, you know, if you're coming from the editorial side, not familiar with the marketing side, you know, take a look at things like Ad Week, Ad Age, DigiDay, Contently you know, the native ad Institute has a fantastic blog and, and does some custom research on the topic. So just to kind of familiarize yourself so you can, you can uh, learn that side of the conversation as well.
0: So what is it that, that the, these companies, what, what is the, you know, what is it they like about native advertising as opposed to other forms of advertising?
1: Well, I mean, I think first of all, you know, it, tends to be a more expensive endeavor than just buying some some banner ads, you know, especially now that programmatic has become as common as it is and you're sort of it's a race to the bottom in terms of pricing, you know, where you can get those pennies to put your, your banners out. So, you know, content marketing in this way when you're working with a publisher is, is a premium offering. So you're able to charge more for it, which is a great perk for, for publishers who need new revenue streams. The other thing that that a lot of publishers like is It allows them to give a better experience to their readers because, you know, we've all had that experience where you're on a publishing site, you're getting pop ups or, you know, layered ads or you've got to wait several seconds for for things to load because there's just too many uh, disruptive, you know, often low quality ads on the page. So for a publisher to be able to put premium content in place of a lot of those sort of disruptive ad experiences that readers don't like allows them to hopefully create a better experience for their readers, too.
0: From a publisher standpoint, you know, I've got an editorial department, I've got a marketing department, I don't really have any native advertising strategy at this point. What should I be thinking about? What's a good way for me to move forward so that maybe we could do more native advertising and just stick our toe in the water, as it were?
1: Yeah, so I have found, just in my experience, I mean, it's tough a lot of folks feel like on the publishing side, they have to go out and hire a whole team. And that's understandably really hard to justify if you're just sort of starting to experiment. So it's good to know that there are a lot of freelancers out there who can help with this while you scale the team. So you don't have to go out and hire you know, a second brand newsroom to, to fill out just to to kind of dip your toe in. So maybe deputizing someone on your team, perhaps on the marketing side, or if you've got a curious person on your editorial side who wants to act as the conscience and kind of approve or veto things, uh, you know, not create the content, but have a say in what fits your publication, they may feel honored to be able to, to draw that line in the sand for you. So having someone who can kind of approve those things and then talking to your sales team, you know, that's already selling other kinds of ads, whether it's full page print ads or event sponsorships or whatever it is, about which of their current clients, you know, their their advertisers might be interested in this kind of thing. Because it may have come up in conversation and finding sort of a willing partner who, you know, you've got a relationship with already who wants to experiment with you. Many publishers that I know, particularly smaller publishers, have done their first program sort of as an added value in order to create a case study right so they might not be charging as much for this first one they find that that partner that that is willing to experiment with them and that gives them a great case study moving forward you know to be able to go out and sell future partnerships with other advertisers And then you can always hire a freelancer. Many freelancers are doing both editorial and sponsored content or are doing mostly sponsored content. So you can find a freelancer so that you don't have to ask anyone on your editorial team to create this kind of stuff. You don't have to jeopardize the sort of church and state separation there. And that will give you a way to kind of experiment without having to make very heavy investments. And then as you have that case study and continue to pitch that to other advertisers, you may find that you can sort of scale your team in response to that demand.
0: So looking out there now at, the, at uh, the various publications, online publications, who do you see is, is doing a really good job, you think, with native advertising?
1: So, I mean, like I said, the New York Times T-Brand Studio really creates some amazing top-notch work. They've got incredible resources and a huge team of really talented people. So they're doing some great stuff. But I'm also seeing amazing stuff coming out of the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, the Atlantic. And of course, BuzzFeed doesn't even have standard ads. They're entirely supported, you know, by native advertising and sponsored content. So uh, all of those have some, some deep experience and some really great storytelling. I do think it's important to note, you know, it's easy to look at those big examples, especially if you're a smaller or a niche publisher and feel like, well, you know, I can't make a 1500 word piece with three videos and photos and all these things. I don't have the resources. And it comes back to that first thing we were talking about, about the context, right? So maybe that's not what's most native to you and your platform. You don't have to do what the New York Times does or what BuzzFeed does or what anyone else does. You've just got to figure out what you do best and create a sponsored version of that. So I just don't want anyone to look at these, these great examples of you know, sort of multimedia storytelling from huge teams and feel like, well, then this must not be for me. There's something in context for for every kind and size of publisher.
0: So somebody who, who was formerly working at the New York Times and, and Time, Time Inc. going out on, on her own, I would imagine you, you see that sort of the future is bright for this type of uh, native advertising. I should say not this type. The future is right for native advertising.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's such an appetite from publishers to explore this as a new revenue stream. And there's an incredible appetite from advertisers to figure out how they can tell better stories that, you know, quite frankly, that their audience won't hate, because that's the case with a lot of disruptive, especially digital advertising. So we're definitely seeing increased investment on both sides, a lot of great content being created. So it was an exciting time for me to kind of go out on my own and and try to be a part of that solution and helping helping publishers grow and scale those teams and, and helping advertisers figure out their own story so that they can be better partners for those publishers and create better content. So it's been a lot of fun for me to go out there and, and try to teach the, the tools and tactics of journalism to, to marketers.
0: So are there any, you know, I, I don't want you to name any names, but are, are there any things that you see sometimes that sort of make you, you know, make you shake your head and say, why did they do that that way? What, you know, something could have been so much better. All the common mistakes
1: (laughs) all the time. Yeah. I think that comes with any career, right? Where you, you sort of, once you see how the sausage is made, it kind of ruins your experience of, of ever consuming it as a, as an objective third party. But yeah, uh, I I see that a lot. I think the biggest mistake is advertisers thinking that storytelling is a sneaky way to just sell, right? If I fill the first paragraph with words, then I can just sell like I normally do in an ad. And you know, you can't trick people. <laughs> you you truly have to put the story first and you have to want to tell a story worth listening to. Um, if you're just trying to, you know, sell tickets to something or sell a product, it's a tricky line. And, you know, not all kinds of advertisers are a great fit for storytelling and not all kinds of campaigns, right? I mean, if you are Starbucks and you want to tell the stories of where your beans are sourced from, then that's a great opportunity to go ahead and, you know, follow, go go create a video on the farm or something where, where these beans are being grown and harvested. If you're just trying to get people to go out and buy the unicorn Frappuccino that they just released, then that might not be a great way to do it. There's not such depth of story there. That's probably better served with, you know, a social media campaign of some sort, where people can be a little more direct response, and it can more closely drive a physical sale immediately. So, yeah, I think it, the biggest mistake is is kind of selling too hard and, and using this, the story as a mask for for some sort of really hard selling.
0: Melanie, this has been great. Uh, we don't we don't get to talk about advertising enough on this sh- uh, on the podcast. So it, it's great to have somebody come in and sort of open up that world to us. Uh, how can people find out about the work that you do?
1: Yeah, so you can find me across most places on the web as diesel M-D-E-Z-I-E-L. So that's my website, mdiesel.com, or on Twitter, at mdiesel. And I would love to hear people's questions about native advertising, their concerns. Uh, I'm an open book when it comes to this stuff, so I'm excited to to hear from some of your listeners and, and hopefully expand the conversation.
0: Well, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Next time on It's All Journalism. When the, sort of the new media, as it was once called first started out, the idea was that you could just take the same story and and essentially present it on these different platforms, and it wouldn't be all that different, right? You know, you change SOT colon to, you know, comma said, you know, and and you just take your script and you sort of make it, you know, print worthy, and then it would go on on the web. Well, that's, I hope, not what we're doing anymore. I surely hope people aren't. These platforms are different, and the stories need to be told differently. In our next podcast, veteran journalist Deborah Potter joins us in the studio. She interviews me about my upcoming book on podcasting, and I interview her about her work at NewsLab, a nonprofit journalism resource center. We also talk about her long career as a broadcast journalist and educator. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
1: The Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander.
0: Draw play to Sean. Across the 10 to 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast.
1: Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman.
0: We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy bureaucratic politics-only reputation it tries to shed.
1: The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, onecom or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.